I said, empty your mind. Be formless, shapeless, like water. Join movement expert Aaron Alexander as he dives into the minds of the foremost innovative healthcare thinkers and movement masters on their approach to optimal health and wellness. Align Podcast. My name is Aaron Alexander, and I am reporting to you live from Florence, Italy. I have left Morocco after all of this time. I was there for two months, and it was beautiful and wonderful. And now I landed in Rome just uh, about a week ago, and I'm touring through Tuscany, went to the Leaning Tower of Pisa, and uh, I went to Luca, and I'm in Florence, the birthplace of the Renaissance. Really fantastic. Today's episode was with Mr. Jimmy Moore. I think he is a beautiful man. I had a fantastic time getting to chat with him. Um, in this conversation, we get into his super, super interesting story where he went from weighing over 400 pounds to losing that weight, becoming a uh, the handsome stud muffin that he is today. And uh, really interesting, the way that he did it was not the standard model of just reducing calories and following the laws of thermodynamics, but uh, getting a little bit more clever, utilizing some macronutrients that a lot of us are afraid of, being fat, saturated fat, specifically all these different types, polyunsaturated, monounsaturated, all these different types of beautiful fats that we fear because of the word, but in fact, it's a quite effective energy source. And uh, we get into the ins and the outs and the whys and the hows of that stuff in this conversation. Ketosis, what the heck is that? Ketogenic diets, what the heck are those? And the dangers of the most insidious drug of them all, the white sugar. <laughs> that stuff is no bueno. I didn't know how much I weighed. And so they're like, oh, ours goes to 500. Oh, I'm nowhere near 500. So I go and step on it. And I had this huge gulp in my throat when I saw four as the very first number because I had no idea. I thought in my head I was maybe 330. 335. So that's how far from reality I had gotten and how bad it is. And you might be like, well, I don't understand why triglycerides is a big deal. The higher triglycerides are, the higher your propensity for high blood pressure, the higher your propensity for high hyperglycemia, high blood sugar, and also the higher your propensity for inflammation. And really it's that inflammation that we talked about earlier that is at the heart of every single problem that people have chronically as a disease. Um, thank you so much for tuning in. I appreciate your time and your care and your consideration. You're all such beautiful, smiling people. And this journey, uh, five months later, here I am in the birthplace of the Renaissance. Started off in London, came across through Amsterdam, Belgium, France, Spain, Morocco. Now all the way back to the birthplace, the Roman Empire. Um, super, super interesting experiencing experience to get to see that whole evolution of uh, European culture, conquest, all that stuff. Really, really fascinating. And really extra exciting to be in the place where 
art was so highly praised. The uh, Medici family, an old bank owner fellas, richest family and probably in Italy, had invested tons of money into artists, into creating or, or perpetuating artistic expression. Feed Michelangelo and Donatello and Raphael and all the, all the Ninja Turtles bunch of money investing towards creating beauty in the town and now here we are Florence is one of the most beautiful towns in the world so uh, interesting interesting stuff I wonder how we can kind of take those lessons in our own lives and maybe reinvest our energy reinvest our money reinvest whatever it may be into a little bit more artistic expression of ourselves not being all just work 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 grind 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 but how can we be a little bit special a little bit different Another pretty cool thing that happened in these here parts during Renaissance time frame, 1500s, was uh, we started to get into human dissection. Before that, we were borrowing a lot of the information that we had of medicine from Muslim folks because they weren't, they had no fear in these realms. And uh, finally, after X amount of years, we were willing to separate ourselves from the puritanical nonsense and actually delve into our bodies, literally. And from that, we have the birth of modern medicine. So I wonder if perhaps there are some boundaries that modern folks are fearful to step into just the way they were 500 years ago. I wonder if, what, what, what could the, the modern day boundary be that we fear? Could it be maybe looking into ourselves in kind of more of a woo-woo, new age yoga type way? Could maybe looking at structural alignment be something that could be the, the key, the answer to a lot of potential diseases that we are experiencing? Could maybe stepping away from technology, could maybe stepping into just having, really getting into a deeper sense of who the heck we are and what the heck it is that we're doing on this earth. I know talking about this stuff makes a lot of people kind of uncomfortable and maybe roll their eyes, but I see a really interesting component missing from this modern world. Every time you go to a modern world, people are not able to stand idly without staring into their cell phones. That's an interesting thing. When you go to a museum, you know, today I was, I was at one of the biggest museum, multiple museums today, and uh, saw, uh, what was it, David, Michelangelo's David, freaking beautiful, you know, and immediately people just need to take out their cell phone and take pictures of it, right? So we're, we're completely leaving the experience of just being in a place and immediately jumping to the experience of proving to other people that we arrived. And I think what that does is it creates a very interesting separation between ourselves and uh, ourselves. <laughs> um, so, yeah, just ponder on that. Ponder, ponder, ponder. What is the modern medicine that we are missing? Because we are going to repeatedly find new discoveries. We are not done, has not finished. So I think we should, we should branch out. Get after it. Don't be scared to be different. Michelangelo quote, and then we'll get to the show. Um, I saw an angel in the marble, and I chipped away until I set it free. I like that a lot. What can you chip away from yourself to set yourself free? What's the superfluous nonsense that you have existing in your life? 
cut it out ASAP, please visit the aligntherapy.com website, A-L-I-G-N therapy.com. On there you find hundreds of free videos on self-care and functional movement. You'll find the self-care kit, which is a handy-dandy foam roller, hollow inside balls, bands, screw-in lids, and a whole lot of love all wrapped up inside that fella. (coughs) Use that thing inside your car, throw it underneath your car seat, throw it underneath your couch, whatever you got to do. And please subscribe, share, and uh, leave me comments on iTunes. Five stars are preferable. Thank you so much for doing that. Honestly, God, it is more helpful than you know, and I greatly appreciate it. And check out the, uh, you can cruise over to Live and Libby Low Carb after this if you choose. And uh, you can hear, I did an interview on Jimmy's show in regards to travel, in regards to movement, in regards to some little tips and tricks you can utilize while you're on the road to keep your body moving well. At the time of said interview, just FYI, I was uh, jet lagged from getting off the plane from Morocco and feeling kind of like head coldy weirdness, so I don't think I was as sharp as I, <laughs> I potentially could have been, <laughs> so I apologize for that. Um, as well, tune in to the uh, end of this episode for the rest of that music. I didn't, I didn't explain. That was me recording live today on the street uh, with my, my new buddy David, and uh, super, super radical, beautiful musician, busker guy and uh, playing the handpan. Amazing, wonderful instrument. I can't wait to get one and weird out on that thing for hours. It's just such a beautiful thing. Check it out. And uh, I'll include Davide's information on the show notes so you guys can pick up some music from him. And uh, yeah, tune into the end. Check it out. All right, here we go. Back to the Ricket Ricket Show with Mr. Jimmy Moore. Align Podcast. Jimmy Moore, thank you so much for coming on the show. I got tons of questions for you. I've been really looking forward to chatting with you. Um, so from my understanding, you used to weigh over 400 pounds. Accurate? Yeah, absolutely. 410. 410. So that's fascinating to me. I'd love to just understand like what that was like being in that 410-pound position. What was the impetus to change and kind of what was that journey like? You just kind of and how how the heck did you get there to begin with, how right? How did you do that? <laughs> well, when you grow up kind of with a single mom who is raising, I had an older brother and a younger sister, and it was three of us, and she was a single mom with an income less than $20,000 in the 1980s, uh, you don't eat very well. And I think that exposure to the crappy garbage, as I now call it, <laughs> takes its toll. And I think anyone that pretends that all those years of sugary cereal and Uh, little snack cakes and potato chips and Coca-Cola doesn't take a toll because it does. And it's also interesting, too, because people say, like, well, why didn't you change when you became an adult? You know, once you become an adult, you should know how to eat properly now. And I'm going, why? why? Why would you believe that that's true? Because what you grew up learning how to eat, duh, you're going to think that's the normal way to eat. So in my 20s, as I went to college and got out of college and started working, I was eating just like I did when I was growing up because, dang, mom made hamburger helper growing up and we had uh, biscuits on the side and we had a dessert and all this kind of thing. So that was normal. 
meanwhile, my weight goes up, 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 up. And I go through bouts of time here and there where I would try to lose weight the conventional way, which we all know when you want to lose weight, what do you do? You cut calories, you cut portion sizes, you cut fat out of your diet, and you exercise till you drop. That's pretty much the prescription that people have in their heads as the default diet to do. And I did it like a champ. And, and what's interesting, Aaron, is I would do that and actually succeed at losing weight. Sure. But it wasn't because it was necessarily a healthy diet. It was because I was cutting calories to a sufficient level that I was probably wasting muscle. I was probably doing some other things metabolically that was messing me up even more. So in addition to all those years of really eating crappy carbs, then I was doing crappy diets and over and over and over again, up and down, all of those things add up to where I did need to make a change. And it was December of 2003. I got this book from my mother-in-law for Christmas. It was a diet book. Damn you, mom. <laughs> but I, I, I said that at the time. But now looking back, I'm really glad that she gave me Dr. Atkins' New Diet Revolution because I read that book and it was unlike any other book I'd ever read before on nutrition because I just assume every diet book basically says cut calories, cut fat, cut portion sizes and exercise. That tends to be you know, calories in, calories out. That tends to be kind of the message du jour when you want to lose weight and get healthy. So I read this book and it says eat less carbohydrates. I thought that's where you got your energy from. Why would I do that? Eat more fat. Whoa, this guy's a cardiologist and he's telling people to eat more fat. Doesn't he know that raises your cholesterol and clogs your arteries and gives you heart disease? But you know what, Aaron? I had tried over and over and over again to make the shift uh, to, to lose weight for good and not just lose weight but get healthy for good and nothing had ever worked. So I said, what the heck? So January 1st, 2004, right after I read that Dr. Atkins book, getting it for Christmas, I went on the Atkins diet and I started off at 410 pounds. And this is an interesting story too, because January 1st, I'm, I'm driving around my neighborhood looking for some scale that would weigh me because my home scale wouldn't weigh me. I think uh, it only went up to 300 pounds. And so I'm going to the YMCA, I'm going to all these different places they don't have a scale that's weighing me. And I'm like, what the? So I finally go to Gold's Gym, you know, all these beefy guys in there on January 1st. And I said, do y'all have a scale that goes, I don't know, 350 pounds? You know, I, I didn't know how much I weighed. And so they're like, oh, ours goes to 500. Oh, I'm nowhere near 500. So I go and step on it. And I had this huge gulp in my throat when I saw four yeah. as the very first number. Because I had no idea. I thought in my head I was maybe 330, 335. So that's how far from reality I had gotten and how bad it is. And part of the problem is, and you can see on camera here, I'm, I'm very tall. And so that kind of hides some of it. But, dude, I had no idea it had gotten that bad. So I was like, okay, this is, this is for reals now. So I, I started on January 1st, 2004 and started it in earnest. And after I got through the little bit of a transition of getting used to eating less carbs and more fat after having, what, probably 1,500 grams of carbs a day in the form of Coca-Cola and Little Debbie snack cakes and every junk food you could possibly think of, I'm suddenly eating 20 grams of carbs of broccoli and cauliflower and spinach. Wow. Wow. 
Yeah, that yeah. was quite the transition. Yeah, and that's, that's the thing. It's like I remember as a kid, I used to always think that just because adults were older than me, it meant they knew what they were doing. <laughs> no, that's not the case. <laughs> not at all. You know, it's, it's it's a fascinating thing. It's like it's like you know, practice doesn't make perfect. Practice makes permanent. You know, so no matter what Ooh, it is like you're that. doing. You know, if you are, if if you're drinking Coca Cola, if you're if you're doing a hundred push-ups, you know, whatever it is, your body will start to trend towards that direction. You know, just because we're older and wiser does not mean we're doing the right thing. So I think that having those new fresh eyes, like you had, and being willing to read the book, yeah, you know, that's the big thing. It's like having that that open mind that, like, you know what, like maybe I don't know everything. You know, so that, that's it's such a cool story that you're able to make that transition happen. And the same with doctors, by the way, uh, they, they don't know everything either. And we can get into that in here in a minute. Right. <laughs> uh, but, but I did end up going on the, on the Atkins diet. I lost 30 pounds in the first month. I, I, I was on per, three prescription medications when I started all this. I was on high cholesterol medication, Crestor. I was on, uh, what's that, uh, breathing medication, Advair. You suck up the little stuff goes in your lungs because I was wheezing. And then there uh, was a blood pressure medicine. I don't remember the name of it. But within... Two weeks, I was off the breathing medication because I was feeling better, breathing better, everything was better, not eating grains, star starch, and sugar. Right. Um, and then I came off of the blood pressure medication. I was sitting on the couch over there and uh, got up one day and went, whoa, I was just like blacking out. And my wife's like, are you still taking that blood pressure medicine? I said, yeah. She said, I don't think you need it anymore. So I threw it out the window and have never taken it again since. Awesome. And then the cholesterol lowering one, that was the tricky one. And we, we can certainly talk about cholesterol since I wrote a book about it. But yeah. it was nine months before I decided and felt brave enough to come off of the statin. Um, but I'm really glad that I did. And, and we, like I said, we can certainly talk about lipids here today. But uh, by the end of the year, I did end up losing a total of 180 pounds. But I don't really think that's the big success. I think the big success is what happened here in my mind that sugar was rat poison to me. Right. which when you realize my history of eating sugar and sugary, crappy, garbage-type foods, that is a miracle if you ask me because I never thought in a million years I would look at something sweet and sugary and think it's disgusting. And yet that's exactly how I see Doritos. That's how I see Little Debbie snack cakes or red velvet cake, chocolate cake, whatever you want to call it, Coca-Cola. All of those things, it just literally repulses me on the inside now to even look at those things and even call them food. I call them food-like disease agents now. <laughs> yeah, so I, I think that it would be really fantastic if we were able to somehow change the name of fat to like really fantastic fuel or something, yes. something else because it's, it's really... Fabulous fuel, I like that. It's, it's, it's confusing. You know, it's like yeah. the most obvious thing to cut out if you want to reduce fat is fat, right? Right. So what, what is the, what is the deal with that? Like what's, what should we know about fat? What is the difference between good fat, bad fat, hydrogenated fat, trans fat, polyunsaturated, monounsaturated? Like what is fat? Yeah. You know, what's interesting. I just got back from a medical conference. I've been uh, 10 years in a row to this one called the American Society of Bariatric Physicians. It's all these doctors that are trying to help people lose weight. And they'll include in there, we, we have quite a few of our low-carb researchers that are a part of that. But in the main portion of this conference, and, and I'm a layperson just sitting there kind of reporting on it, I live tweet and live Instagram. And so uh, in the main portion, they have a lot of these kind of mainstream conventional wisdom type people. And when they talk about a high-fat diet, they're generally talking about it within the framework of 
a, a like mouse study, for example. Well, the, the mouse they fed them fat is like 40% fat, um, and then the fat is like all soybean oil mm. or some other omega. That's called an omega-6 fat. It's a vegetable oil. You might have seen cottonseed oil on labels. You might see canola oil. All of those are really, really unhealthy for you because they're highly, highly inflammatory, and inflammation is really at the heart of disease. So anyway, they're sitting there talking about high-fat diet, 40% of this, and, and the mice get obese, blah, blah, blah. But then you tease out what else is in that food composition? And you see it's also 40% carbohydrate. And so they say that high-fat diet, X, Y, Z, you know, you see these big headlines and they don't really tell you that it's not within the context of a low-carb diet. If something's going to be high-fat, you really have to cut carbs in order for it to be genuinely high-fat. And it does have to be the quality sources because you did ask about that. Yeah. The good fats are not the fats that you think are good. We've been told corn oil, soybean oil, all these omega-6 fats. You go into a grocery store now, the store shelves are lined with all mazola and all of these great, quote-unquote, healthy fats for you to be eating. But what they're not telling people is those things are highly, highly processed. Go to YouTube right now. Type in how canola oil is made. Be prepared for the shock of your life because they have to use deodorizers and all these really nasty processes to make it humanly consumable. It's pretty disgusting, Aaron, when you stop and think about what they've done to the food supply, pretending that it's healthy. And American Heart Association has their little heart health symbol right there on the front packaging. Well, thank you, because that tells me what not to eat in my heart-healthy diet. So. The healthy fats are really two primarily ones. You've got the saturated fats, the ones that you've been told to avoid, the ones that usually get lumped together with the trans fats, which we all agree trans fats are bad news and you don't want those in your, in your diet. But saturated fat within the context of a low-carb uh, nutrition, and low can be you know, subjective. I eat between 25 to 30. Someone else could maybe get away with 100, 125 grams, but we definitely don't need all of the crappy garbage that's in all those foods that I talked about earlier that I used to eat. We're talking about real whole food sources of, of carbohydrates if you are going to eat them. So saturated fats, so things like butter, coconut oil, full fat meats and cheeses, cream, lard, all of these are really, really healthy. In fact, on my shirt today, I'm going to lower my screen so you can see I got my <laughs> Praise the Lord. <laughs> Praise the Lord. <laughs> Praise the Lord uh, shirt on. Uh, my friend Diane Sanfilippo sent that to me. So the other key fat that's really healthy are the monounsaturated fats. Now, these are things like avocados, avocado oil. Uh, nuts also have um, monounsaturated fats. Peanuts are not a nut, so please do not eat peanuts on a regular basis. If you're going to choose nuts, generally the best ones are almonds, macadamia nuts, um, I recently, last year, just found out about this new nut called Peely Nuts, which also has a lot of monounsaturated fats with very little carbohydrates in them. And then, of course, the omega-3 fats come in there as well. You want to get your fish oil. You want to get your, your fatty, uh, fatty acids in there. So those are all critical. So you're not trying to get a whole bunch of vegetable oils. You don't want to have margarine. Uh, you know, that they sell this, I can't believe it's not butter, but I can, I can believe it. It's totally not butter because once you get real butter and when I say butter, try to get the quality sources as well. I love Kerrygold. In fact, I'm about six feet from my refrigerator. I could grab like, I got like 50 sticks of Kerrygold butter in my, in my fridge. And those things are healthy. And, and we can talk about why they're healthy here in a minute, but definitely one of the big reasons, it, oh, my wife's going to bring one for me. 
Um, one of the big reasons is <laughs> satiety. Trophy. Yes, yes. So we have both the salted and the unsalted. Nice. There you go. I'm, gonna eat, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so, so um, I'm sorry. What was I saying? Oh yeah. So <laughs> I think you were talking about your mother. My mother. No, oh, just I, I would never talk about my mother. My mother's a darling. Okay, we can't talk about my mother. She actually had gastric bypass two weeks before I started the Atkins diet. And she lost 100 pounds really fast, had a couple of hospitalizations from being malnutrition, you know, the things that happen when you have that surgery. And she did really well, looked really good, but then she kind of fell off. Her husband, uh, my stepfather, didn't support her in it. And now she's ballooned back up even bigger than she was before. So it's, it's really sad. People think that's the answer. That ain't the answer. You really have to change up here. And that's what happened for me that, that now I can understand that saturated fats not unhealthy and you want the omega-3 fats you want the monounsaturated fats those things give you the satiation that's what i was talking about uh being satisfied and hunger free and stable mood and memory you know being able to remember things it, it it's amazing right yeah one so a few things you mentioned was before you were on medications and uh i, I know that people are starting to finally realize this but i still the th the people that i talk to are in the bubbles that i live in being like hawaii or bend oregon or boulder colorado where it's like everybody thinks this way right it's like that's not true you know you go out uh -uh. to the midwest and you go to these places and we see t being on medication as a normal thing that is not normal that is unacceptable you know and it's we've like even been trained aaron when we go to our doctors we've been trained watching commercials on television Ask your doctor about whatever. Right. And so we've we've kind of been trained that if you have an ailment, the answer is in medicine, not the answer is in nutrition and lifestyle changes. Right. And part of that problem is doctors have not been given nutritional training. And this is something that shocks people. I mean, every single time I tell people, you know, doctors don't know anything about nutrition. They're like, well, that's preposterous. They know everything about everything in medicine. I said, Want to guess how, how much education they got in nutrition? Ask your doctor. I guarantee you it's less than two weeks. Right. And I just talked to a, a graduate student from Duke University School of Medicine. He just completed his four years. I said this question, how, how many hours did you have? He said, we had one three-hour seminar, said nothing about carbohydrate metabolism, said nothing about insulin being driven by carbs and protein, nothing, not a thing. And so how do we expect them to treat us with nutritional therapies if they haven't even been educated unless they educated themselves on it in the first place? Right. And with all due respect to Western medicine, it's it's phenomenal. You know, if you yeah. if you cut your finger off, don't go see Jimmy Moore. You know, I break really this don't. arm. I want to get it set back. Right. Trust me. <laughs> you know? Like, don't go, don't go see me. Like that. That's the worst decision ever. You know, it's right. like go see Western doctor because it's it's amazing what we can do. You know, right. but it's 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 the confusion that we think because someone's wearing a lab coat that all of a sudden they know everything about health and wellness. It's not their job yet. You know, right. hopefully we'll see a transition with that. But to date, it's not their job to give you advice on health and wellness from my experience thus far. You know, and so but one of the questions I'm curious about, because I've been tinkering around with eating a pretty large amount of uh, saturated fat, uh, specifically butter and eggs, and yeah. just really been getting after it in the last like three months. I've kind of been conducting a, a study on myself. Can I eat too much butter? <laughs> like how much how much fat is too much fat? I will say yes and no, you can eat too much butter. 
Yes, you can if you blow beyond your satiety signals. And see, for a lot of people, they're like, I don't know what you're talking about, satiety signals. So uh, because they've been chronically hungry from their very high refined carbohydrate, mostly diet for so long, they don't even know anything beyond what hunger is. So once you kind of get into this and once you start recognizing, okay, I'm hungry, okay, I'm full, I'm satisfied, you kind of get that, that feeling where you know. So yeah, absolutely, Aaron. I mean, you could sit there and stuff yourself. I, I got a friend over in the UK named Sam Feldham, who you probably know. And Sam did this experiment where he ate 5,000 calories a day, uh, first of a low-carb, high-fat diet. Then, he, then I think he tried like a standard American-type crappy garbage diet. Then he tried the vegan diet, all 5,000 calories, just to show this is what happened to me eating this way. This is what happened to me. And, and I'm sure, and he told me this when I interviewed him about this on my, on my podcast. He said, man, it was hard on the low-carb, high-fat because it is such a satiating right. uh, diet. You can't eat but just so much before you blow by those satiety signals. And so if you blow by the satiety signals, I suppose it is possible that that's too much fat. And you'll throw it up if you eat way too much. So um, so I think the body was created. God knew what he was doing when he created the body. He, it was created to eat and feel satisfied at a certain point. And I think once you start eating real food and you get away from the westernized uh, food-like disease agents, as I, talk, as I called them, um, once you get away from those and you have a normal hunger and fullness signal again, absolutely, you will not eat too much fat. I don't know how much fat you're eating. Uh, you said you're added a whole lot of saturated fat. I bet I still eat more than you do. Competition's on. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, well, so one of the one of the curiosities I had is um, as I got into playing with this eating. I mean, I'm probably eating now, maybe probably not so much anymore. Maybe like like four or five tablespoons of butter each day before it was yeah. more than that. I was like, really, I'm all about experiments. I was really getting after it and I was, yep. I, I don't know how much, but it was probably a couple cups of butter a day just to see what would happen. And, um, one of the things that I actually noticed was my HDL cholesterol yep. went up. My LDL yep. cholesterol went down, you know, and this kind of blew doctors away. So I was, I was on blood, pan, blood panels and I was like playing with testosterone, not, not testosterone therapy, but just seeing if I could naturally raise my testosterone. Yep. That's kind of how it all started. Um, you know, but it was, it was pretty fascinating, you know? So, so that's something I'd like for you to get into a little bit because you, you wrote a book about it. Um, what is, you know, LDL, HDL, total cholesterol? What, what is that? What's the relevance of that for people? Yeah, so people are very familiar with HDL. In fact, my subtitle in my book is What the HDL is Wrong with My Numbers, Cholesterol Clarity, What the HDL is Wrong with My Numbers. And I can't take credit for that. My, a guy from my church actually came up with that when I was describing the book. And he's, he's like, yeah, what the HDL? I was like, ah, that's great. So um, actually, HDL and LDL uh, are both uh, lipoproteins. So you have high-density lipoprotein, that's HDL, and low-density lipoprotein, uh, LDL. And don't let that kind of confuse you. Basically, what we're looking at here is different classifications of this, this component in the body. It's like a blood fat. Um, we also have triglycerides, which you've probably seen on your standard lipid panel. And, and you were talking about your HDL went up uh, and your LDL came down eating the, the butter. I bet your triglycerides also drop. Is that right? Yeah, they dropped a bit too. Yeah. So, so when people get a standard cholesterol panel run, generally they see total LDL, C, HDL, C, triglycerides, and maybe sometimes they throw in VLDL, which we'll talk about all those. So 
HDL people know as the good cholesterol, and that's definitely one you want to have higher. Um, I did just learn at this medical conference it is possible to have too high HDL, um, and there's a lot of mechanisms there we didn't really talk about in my book. I mean, so there's always new things to learn. Uh, but you definitely want it higher than, say, 20s and 30s, which is where it is chronically for a lot of people. Um, I think when I first, when I was 410, it's probably around 21 or 22. It's really low. And then the other one that people uh, probably aren't as familiar with is the triglycerides. And that is a key blood fat that is driven by carbohydrate consumption. So when you eat a lot of carbs, I can tell just by looking at your lipid panel and specifically your triglycerides on that cholesterol panel, I can tell if you are a high-carb eater or if you're a low-carb eater because the triglycerides are easily going to be very, very high. I'll just give you an example. My wife, Christine, sitting over there. Um, hi, Christine. She, oh, he says hello. <laughs> she says hi back. So um, her triglycerides, before she saw me uh, doing low carb and being successful, but she herself has always been pretty thin and pretty healthy. But one time we got her triglycerides run, they were close to 300. Now, conventional medicine says get it under 150. 150 is still high, by the way. We can talk about that in a minute. But Hers was 300. So I basically said, you know what? Cut out the M&Ms. Cut out the Skittles. Let's get the carbs down in your diet and let's see what happens. Within six weeks, Aaron, dropped from 300 to 136. That's how powerful this is. And you might be like, well, I don't understand why triglycerides is a big deal. The higher triglycerides are, the higher your propensity for high blood pressure, the higher your propensity for high hyperglycemia, high blood sugar, and also the higher your propensity for inflammation. And really, it's that inflammation that we talked about earlier that is at the heart of every single problem that people have chronically as a disease. And so you want to get the triglycerides low. Now, if it's under 100, your, your uh, triglycerides, I can tell right then and there, you're eating the appropriate amount of carbohydrate for your tolerance level. Now, that's going to uh, shift from person to person. I used to eat a boatload of carbs in my diet, so I can't handle as many as, say, you. I can have, like I said, about 25 to 30 a day, but someone relatively healthy exercises you know, and has never really had a weight problem could probably get away with maybe 75 to 100, even 125, 150 if you're an elite athlete. So that's one that I think not enough people are talking about. You go to your doctor that he doesn't really focus on the triglycerides. He focuses on LDL, HDL, and total, right? right. And, and mainly LDL and total. So let's look at the LDL just for a second. It shows up on your cholesterol panel as LDLC. Guess what the C stands for? It's calculated. It's estimated. It's not precisely measured. And you ask most people, they have no idea that LDL isn't precisely measured. They just assume it because it's a number on their cholesterol panel. But what they do is they use this equation. It's called the Friedwald equation. They take your HDL, your triglycerides, and all the other numbers, and they, you know, spits out this LDL number. Well, the LDLC number can be skewed if you have lower triglycerides and higher HDL, which is indicative when you start eating a low-carb diet. That definitely happens, as you've noticed. And so it doesn't help you. And yet they're predicating treatment of lipids on your LDL. They want it under 100. Well, if it's over 100, your doctor's having a back crap crazy moment and is going to say, you need to be taking a medication for this number that's estimated. So that doesn't make sense. And then they look at total cholesterol, which includes 
that number I just described, the LDLC, which they want to be lower, but they also it also includes a number you want to be higher, and that's your HDL. HDL you want higher, and yet it'll show up in your total cholesterol. I had a lady write me a couple of months ago. She was freaking out because her doctor wanted to put her on a statin drug, and she said, I've been eating this way, and I'm, I feel better, and everything's great. I said, well, send me your lipid panels. And so she had one from before and then the new one. Her LDL did not change. It was exactly the same. The in, and it was 200 was her total cholesterol before. The increases she saw, Aaron, were in her HDL. So before the doctor thought she was healthy because she had a 200 total cholesterol and a lower HDL, now the only thing that changed was HDL came up, her triglycerides also went down, and now he thinks she's in a disease state because the good kind of cholesterol went up? That didn't make sense. So I, there's so much confusion, which is why we wrote Cholesterol Clarity. I wanted people to know crystal clear that the way we're looking at cardiovascular risk using lipids as the litmus test is just whacked because they're looking at the wrong numbers. They're looking at LDL-C, that estimated number, and total cholesterol. And what they should be looking at, if you're going to look at anything on a standard lipid panel, is the triglycerides and the HDL and the ratio between those. There's this thing in, in the research circles called triglyceride to HDL ratio. And if it's 1.0 or less, you're doing good. So let's say your uh, HDL is 72 and your triglycerides are 72. That's a 1.0 ratio. That's perfect. That's what you're looking for. What, what are yours, by the way? I don't remember what it is. You don't have it in front of right now. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to put you on the spot. Uh, oh. But just... <clears throat> So, for example, my uh, HDL was like right around 76 or 78, which, by the way, HDL is very hard for guys to get up. Um, and, and women, though, have a little easier time to get HDL. It might have to do with their cycle or something that makes them a lot better to produce higher HDL. But anywhere over 70 is really the optimal. And then my triglycerides are something like 71, and you definitely want them to try to be below 70. Um, they've been as low as like 42, even in the 30s sometimes. So they fluctuate from, from day to day. But anything under 100 is a great indication that you're eating the appropriate amount of carbohydrates in your diet. So that's good. And then the VLDL, I, I was going to mention that, that's just basically your triglycerides divided by five. So don't think that that's some fancy number. It's just they, they basically take your triglycerides, divide it by five, put it into VLDL so it can go into the total cholesterol, and that also accounts for your triglycerides. Awesome. Yeah, I, I pay a lot more attention to my qualitative state, you know, and so I can tell you exactly how I've been feeling as I've been, you know, testing different types of diets or whatever it is. Awesome. But the numbers, I remember them for, you know, a couple of weeks or so, and then it's it's more about how am I feeling right now. <laughs> that's right. And, and I think that's a good attitude, Aaron. I, I really think too many people obsess about numbers, especially when you get one set of numbers back. Let's right. say your doctor gets back. <laughs> totally different you know, the next day. Exactly. Let's say right. your doctor gets back your total cholesterol like that lady two months ago with the 230. I would say, you know what? Chill. Yeah. To, you know, calm down because that's going to make your numbers worse if you get all upset about it. Sure. 
run it again in a couple of months, and if you replicate it two, three, four times in a row, okay, now it's something to take a closer look at. Doesn't mean you necessarily need a statin drug still. There are other things that we talked about in Cholesterol Clarity, more advanced lipid panels. You can get tests for actual disease. You can actually get a heart scan of your chest. You can get a CIMT of your carotid artery to see if there's any actual signs of disease. That was another thing at this medical conference. There were lipidologists there talking about, well, if you have X, Y, Z in your cholesterol, you need to be on a statin drug. Or you need to do these. And I'm going, what if you have no sign of disease? Why do you need a medication if there's no disease present? Right. And yet they never ask that question. They never think about that question. Unfortunately, there's a lot of beholden interest and they have billions of dollars worth of uh, vested interest in not talking about that. Sure. Well, something I'm curious about is, you know, most people very likely, you know, know what a glycemic index is. If you found my show, you probably know what a glycemic index is by now. You know, for you, your perspective, obviously, you don't want to eat high glycemic food, but what you're saying, don't eat much glycemic food at all, right? What, yeah, what, I, is that not for the, everybody? Not a, not a low glycemic, but a no glycemic diet is what I'm talking about. Because uh, a lot of people don't realize this, and you asked, is it for everybody? Uh, no. And, and we'll talk about that here in a second. Um, a no glycemic diet, because did you realize in your bloodstream, and I have my co-author, Dr. Eric Westman, uh, who was the co-author on both Cholesterol Clarity and Keto Clarity, um, and we're going to write Blood Sugar Clarity one of these days, <laughs> when, I, when I survive from writing three books in, one, in three years. So, um one of the things that he talks about in his work uh, teaching patients primarily with diabetes is, do you know how many teaspoons of sugar are flowing in your body right now? Do you know? Not in teaspoons. My blood sugar this morning, or blood sugar before I got on this was uh, 118. Okay. Is that postprandial? Did you have a meal? Yeah, that was after eating. Yeah, I was going to say, because uh, normal is between like 80 to 100, right? And then postprandial, it can get up to ho hopefully not over 140. If it's over 140, you're starting to have a really bad response. So 118 is not bad postprandial. So it's one teaspoon of sugar in your entire bloodstream. So you think about that in grams of carbohydrates, and I'm sure you might start be reading labels on the back of foods. Hopefully, you're not buying too many foods with labels. Hopefully, you're buying real food and there's no label. But if you're buying still some of those labels, you look at it, and if it's got more than four grams of carbohydrate, guess what? Four grams of carbs is a teaspoon of sugar. So if you're eating more than that, the body has to figure out a place to put that. It has to store those extra carbohydrates that you're not burning off, possibly ostensibly some athletes could be burning off those carbs. But for most people that aren't doing athletic exercise, they're not burning them off. So then the body has, a, has to basically store those excessive carbohydrates as fat because the body doesn't store um, carbs except in the glycogen in your muscles and that kind of thing. But once those become full, it's got nowhere else to go but to convert it into fat and fat in the body, and that's where the energy goes from the excess carbs. So um, that's not a good state to be in, and yet people don't realize it's such a minimal amount in their body. That, does that mean everybody needs to be ketogenic, low-carb? I don't think so. I think people that are young, fit, athletic, those people probably do pretty well, although I've interviewed a few people on the Live in La Vida Low Carb show that are ultra marathoners, people like Zach Bitter and Timothy Allen Olson, 
And those guys, they eat pretty ketogenic in their training. Then on race day, they'll have a few extra carbs to fill up their glycogen stores. But then in the race itself, they're burning fat for fuel, not carbohydrate and sugar for fuel. So I I think it is possible uh, and definitely as a hack. You know, you sound like the kind of person that loves to do a good hack. So if you want to try something, there's definitely no danger in it. That's the thing that always gets me when people talk about, oh, well, ketosis is so dangerous. I'm like, no, you're just talking about eating real food. You're talking about the way our ancestors used to survive between animal kills. Right. And even when they had the animal kill, they would have the fattiest portions of that animal. They actually discarded the lean meats, by the way, and they would eat the fatty parts. They'd go for the brain first and then the heart and do all the fatty parts of the animal. And that would also produce ketones in nutrition, nutritionally. And then between the kills, they would be able to survive because they had ketones that were fueling their brain and their body. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, and, and with that, as far as like, I'm, I actually have an ultra marathon coming up here in, in about four weeks, and I'm thinking about doing it in a state of ketosis, just again as an experiment. Like, I don't, I don't care about running. It's, it's, it's literally just experimental to see what happens. Yeah. And um, you know, so I'll, I'll keep you posted on what that what that ends up turning out to be. But there's when a you, great when you look at like burning fat. Fat's comparable to that of gasoline in your car, from what I read. Yep. You know, yep. so it's so if you if you're if you have an extra ten pounds of fat on your body to burn, you're going to be going for days. You know, whereas and, and with with the amount of blood sugar that you have, or you know, stored glycogen, or you know, the sugar in your body, you'll run out of that fairly quickly. You know, so if you are you know keto adapted or fat adapted, burning energy, it's going to be a pretty effective way to go for a long time. Hence, why our bodies you know revert to that during states of starvation. You know, or or just low carbohydrates. You know, that's the whole gluconeogenesis which i'd like to, to get into that a little bit as well as like what does our body if so we are so accustomed to we need sugar to go right so what if we don't have sugar in our system what does our body do right i, I want to mention one thing about your comments there that was profound by the way you did really well um when you are a sugar burner and you're eating carbs as your primary source of fuel you might see these marathoners have to like refuel with Gatorade at all these different stops, you only have about 2,000 calories worth of energy at your disposal. And when you use all that up, you have to refuel. That's why you see all these refueling stations in a marathon. That's why some racers uh, do what they call bonk because they run out of the fuel and they just can't go anymore. And so when you shift over from being a sugar burner to a fat burner, you suddenly now have tapped into a magical resource where you get how many calories? Do you, do you, realize, do you know how many calories you have of fat in a lean person? Isn't it something like 3,500? 40,000 calories worth of energy. It's a lot more oh, than the sugar. Total. Okay, yeah. yeah. So, you know, and, and that's of a lean person. Somebody like yourself who's pretty lean, you could go literally hours upon hours on that fat burning as your fuel whereas and you don't have to do quite as much of the the Gatorade or whatever I know I just recently interviewed Zach Bitter he's a world champion ultra marathoner and he actually said you know I think I had along my race uh, maybe like a half a coke because I wanted a little bit of a glycogen spike and I wanted a little bit of the caffeine and he, I think he said maybe one other kind of carb thing but the rest of it was all fat and the fat on his body fueling him. It was pretty amazing. Hmm. And so 
I think you asked about gluconeogenesis, so let's define that. Yeah. It's a long, fancy-schmancy G word. It makes you sound smart when you say fun it. Fun to it's, say, absolutely. It's very fun to say. A lot, <laughs> lot better than GNG, which is the short for it, but gluconeogenesis. Right. And what that is is when you consume protein beyond what the body can use, the body, just like carbohydrate, it can't store carbohydrate beyond, beyond the glycogen stores. It has no way of storing protein. So guess what it does? It's like, okay, body, you've gotten enough protein. Let's send the rest of it to the liver. Guess what the liver so conveniently packages that protein as? Sugar in the form of glucose. So that's why you have gluconeogenesis. It's a new way to begin making sugar in the body. And that shocks people too. When I wrote Keto Clarity and people started reading this and they were struggling in trying to get into ketosis, they couldn't understand because their carbs were way low and yet they were eating too much protein. And that's probably the biggest mistake a lot of people make when they go low carb is they think, okay, chicken breast and broccoli with butter on top. Okay, that's pretty decent, but if it's a big old chicken breast, that's a big wallop of protein. And depending on your co on your tolerance level and, and the threshold that you're allowed for your body before it converts it into sugar, that can be problematic. And especially if you're like Jimmy Moore and very, very sensitive to carbohydrate, you've got to know right up front, you're also going to be sensitive to protein. So my protein needs are gonna be lower than, than Aaron's. And so I have a protein threshold of right around 80 to 100 grams. I tend to bump it up on days that I know I'm gonna do um, some resistance training, um, but that's about it. And I know that I can't have too much because I'll see it on my blood sugar monitor. My blood sugar will go up because again, adding more glucose in there. Glucose is a very anti-ketogenic element in the body. You're trying to lower levels of glucosis from every source. The obvious one is sugar, carbohydrates, and then not too much protein, which is why I tell people try to find the fattiest cuts of meats when you do eat meat, but then not too much. I, I went out, I was at that conference in Denver, and I went out and had a steak the other night, and it was a prime rib. It was about seven ounces. So that's maybe, with a lot of fat on it, that's maybe my threshold. I probably can't have more than seven ounces of meat until gluconeogenesis kicks in. Yeah, and I pre that's something that I do appreciate but appreciate about your approach with it is that it's not all about ingesting this massive amount of protein. You know, it mm -hmm. ends up being really stressful in the body, especially I think there's a lot of people and it's it's diet's such an interesting thing. You're you're a brave man to be out speaking about diet because it's it's so variable you know there's so many people it's like you're wrong it's like well shoot you know <laughs> yeah no but there's well, so many people out there that are doing high meat you know where it's like you yeah. are that has in my opinion my humble opinion that has to be taxing your body if you are if you are taking down you know like a ton of burnt steak all day long like right. that is cannot be that easy to break down so what and is, conventional meats too that would be the yeah. other caveat is well, that, try to get grass-fed if you can only get conventional meat, be a vegetarian, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, if you're, yeah. If, you're, if you're taking in hormones and you're taking in antibiotics and you're taking in just that lifestyle of that poor animal that was got to be crying on the inside, you know, standing in his own feces, like that's not okay, you know. And then what that does to the world, you know, recognizing that our, our, our votes, you know, our money is votes, you know. So if we purchase those products, in my opinion, you know, you are voting for that destruction of our environment. And that's, you know, that's kind of pretty tangential. So I'm not going to go too far down that, that That's more controversial than I ever get on my own podcast. So. 
<laughs> but, yeah. but, I, but I hear you, and I love the vibe that you're uh, communicating, Aaron, and I agree with you. I think the excuses that people give for why they can't choose the better quality, think about all that money you used to spend on Coca-Cola. I mean, I'm in the grocery store, and I'm looking in the shelf. That's like $5 a 12-pack now. Right. So spend that extra $5 that you uh, would normally pay for ground beef or whatever and, and spend an extra $5, get the good stuff, sure. and you're going to be better off than you were drinking that Coca-Cola. I think people live too much in the here and now, and they don't think ahead of, gee, how much healthcare cost could I save if I ate good and made myself healthy nutritionally? They're just not thinking in those terms. And that's, you know, another thing along, along with that, you know, is when we're eating fat, you know, we're getting so much, hey, we're getting more calories, we're, we're becoming more satiated from that, you know, but it's, it's the quality that you're getting, you know, so it's, it's the quality is so much more important than quantity. And that's yes. like, that's, we've been tricked. You know, it's like we think like go to Costco and get like, you know, a million pounds of, of whatever it is. You know, it's like you don't need a hundred pounds of something. You know, it's like get a little bit of quality. If you drink a beer, buy a seven dollar beer, you know, instead of like a, you know, a, a five dollar thirty pack or whatever. You know, it's like by ingesting that little bit of quality, your body will say thank you. You know, we don't, we don't need to be ingesting an immense amount of calories of crap. That is not the same as immense as ingesting, you know, a really quality piece of steak or whatever it is that you're doing. I'm curious with what, what is your opinion or what's, what's, what's the research that we've done as far as regional low fat diets? Because I try to eat based off of the region that I'm in essentially, you know, and also off like my blood type and kind of like the region that my, my, my heritage came from, you know? And so yeah. where I currently live is in, in the middle of Oregon, the mountains. So for me, it's like, you know, vegetables and fat and eggs and all that stuff. It makes a ton of sense. What about someone that lives in a tropical environment that's just bustling with tropical fruit? I w and you said low fat, but I think you meant low carb. Yeah, I meant low carb. Okay. <laughs> I was sitting there processing that. I'm going, I think he meant low carb. So, yeah. so if high you fat, live in a tropical, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So if you live in a tropical environment, eat coconut because coconut has the healthiest sources of, of fats that you want. And that's like 90% saturated fat, I believe is what coconut is, especially coconut oil. So I would say if you grew up and you're culturally around the tropics, you probably can handle more carbohydrates than I can. So go ahead and have the papaya and have the pineapple and have all the wonderful fruits that are at your disposal because I think that's what you were culturally um, over the years designed to eat. Right. So to, speaking to your point of, hey, I'm, I'm trying to you know eat the way I am in my region – that's the way if you live near the tropic, you'd be crazy not to. And I think it also is predicated on what else have you eaten in your metabolic history? Did you get exposed to the Western diet? Uh, uh, one thing that we've learned is we've uh, basically sent our diet around the world. Any place that has embraced kind of the westernized diet, the standard American diet, the crappy garbage diet as I call it, yeah. they all have gotten sick. They've all have gotten chronically worse to so that even those traditional foods that never bothered them before are suddenly bothering them the the you know where we're seeing a huge spike in diabetes rates now is china mm. china is is uh highly civilized civilized and they have traditionally a high like white rice type diet 
they're finding that diabetes is becoming worse and worse and worse. And I don't think it's necessarily the white rice that caused it. I think it's the westernized diet that then they then go and eat the white rice after having that Western exposure to crappy carbs in the westernized diet. And now even those traditional carbs are causing them problems. So your answer uh, to your question is a little bit of a tricky one because I would give the caveat, is it exposure to westernized food? I think all bets are off when that happens. Right. And what about the neuroprotective properties of fat? You know, what, how, does that, how does that impact things like Alzheimer's or things, just cognition in general? What is, what is the oh, role that it plays in the brain? Love this question. Thank you. So um, <laughs> when people hear Alzheimer's, they don't think diabetes. But in research circles, they're actually referring to uh, Alzheimer's disease as type 3 diabetes. So everybody knows type 1, type 2, but type 3 diabetes. So this is something that's highly tied to the insulin levels in your body, the blood sugar. This is why all those things are important. So how do you lower blood sugar? How do you lower insulin levels in the body? Hmm. We're talking to the guy from living La Vida low carb. Oh, oh, it must be low carb. <laughs> and so that's, that's really the basis. You have to start with a low carb diet. And again, we've defined low carb is not high protein. It's high fat. So when you remove the carbs, at least down to your tolerance level, moderate down that protein so it's not too much. It's about 15% of calories. That's probably good for most people. And then raise the fat to at least 60, 70%. I eat about 80% fat in my diet because my carbs are lower. My fat has to be higher. Mm. And what that does is when you make the shift from sugar burner to fat burner, that produces a byproduct called ketones. And people get freaked out by ketones, Aaron, but ketones really are a natural thing. Everybody actually produces a little bit of ketones. You don't realize this, but when you sleep at night, overnight, after you've eaten your last meal and before you wake up the next morning, you have microscopic levels of ketones, maybe but somewhere between 0.1 to 0.3 at night, regardless of your diet, because that's how your body keeps you alive. So what we're talking about is making that shift a little higher, a little more permanent. I'm looking at some of these measuring things. I have this little breath ketone meter trying to put on the screen there for you called a ketonic. So you can blow into it and it lets you see if you're in ketosis. And the point of that is the brain loves to be fueled by ketones. Hmm. People think, oh, well, you have to eat carbs because your brain health would be bad. In fact, a lot of the mainstream health organizations, they say, well, you must ingest at least 130 grams of carbohydrate or your brain can't function. They're dumb asses because they don't realize <laughs> that you can also fuel it on fat and yeah. fat produces ketones and the brain functions not just fine, but I would say optimally on ketones. And so it gets in there and, the, and you have, th this was kind of the cool thing. I have done low-fat diet after low-fat diet over the years, and my wife, Christine, will tell you, I am angry when I eat a low-fat diet. And I never put the two and two together until I actually started eating low-carb, high-fat, and, and saw a dramatic shift. I would get angry. It's like, you wouldn't like me when I'm angry, you know, the Incredible Hulk. And so I made a shift, and I started eating the fats, and you find you have calmer mood. You have um, all these things that happen in the brain get better. And there's nothing really that you've done. You know, they have all these psychotropic drugs out there trying to calm people down and, and make them better mentally. I think if they just fed them a big slab of butter every single day, 
we'd be a lot healthier yeah. in our brains. And I could, I could speak to that as well. And that I, I, before maybe four months ago or so, I, I was fairly vegetarian. I ate little fish. So I ate like anchovies and sardines and stuff like that. Um, yep. So I was pescatarian. And then I just decided, again, it's always tinkering. And so I decided to start eating a whole bunch of butter, eating a whole bunch of eggs. Um, raw fermented dairy is something that I do. Raw butter yep. as well. I don't actually do anything pasteurized. Um, and I noticed a... A, this, the, the satiety thing, you know, being, mm-hmm. being not so hungry. B, I felt more, almost like I was like buzzing, you know, it was almost like, like a drug type yes. feeling, you know, it was like, it felt like I, like my brain was, yeah. <laughs> it was the euphoria really, really kicks in super fun feeling. Um, and so then with that, I'm curious what's how what's the value in people measuring their blood sugar measuring their ketones do you think that's that's a necessary thing or do you think we can get by just by you know again like the the qualitative experience of it you know i think for most people it, it depends on their type i think if they're one of those people that are neurotic and they <laughs> will go crazy if they see the numbers and they'll like track every hour to see what's going on. Okay, maybe you shouldn't test. Maybe you should just kind of see, you know, what what those factors are, uh, like you said, how you feel and, and everything like that. Especially, I, I get five or 600 emails every single day, and so I'm trying to keep up and, and answer these different questions that people have. And one of the main themes that comes up over and over again, Aaron, is people will say that they just don't understand why they're not seeing any results. And I, well, tell me, how, how do you feel? Oh, man. I have never felt this great in my life. I got the most amazing brain clarity. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, all my blood markers are great. I feel great. I got energy, but I haven't lost a pound on the scale. And I'm going, um, you know, let's back up a little bit. What did you say at the beginning? Right. And it's like all of that gets thrown out the window. Well, that that's not uh, anything. But people measure their success by what they see on the scale. Sure. And I think that's horrible. I mean, I think quantitatively, all of it matters. All of those little things that you notice happening, that matters. That's that's your success. That's what you should celebrate. Unfortunately, shows like The Biggest Loser and other obsessions about weight kind of skews everybody's view of what success is. Yeah. And, you know, tagging along with that, it's like by having, if you do have that quantitative or qualitative experience of I feel better, that induces things like more exercise. That induces right. things, say, people saying like, you, you look great today, Jimmy. That's awesome. All of a yeah. sudden you create this feedback loop of, yeah, man, I look great. I feel great. Right. And so it's, and it makes you want to keep doing those things that got you there. Totally. Versus, yeah. you know, and, and again, different people are different. If you need numbers, get numbers, you know, if that makes you feel great. But the, the, the most important thing is, do you feel better? You know, are right. you, are you getting into this perpetuation of positivity? You know, and I think that's by far the most important thing. So well, back to your question, you asked yeah. about testing. So oh, yeah. everybody else besides the neurotic, <laughs> go grab you a glucometer Go get a ketone meter. Uh, the Precision Extra is the one that I highly recommend if you're going to uh, test for blood. Now, like I said, there is this one uh, that I showed on camera here, Ketonics. It's a breath ketone meter. A guy in Sweden has epilepsy, and a ketogenic diet helps with epilepsy. So anyway, he created that, and you blow into it. And it, it's it's good if people want a yes-no. Am I fat burning? Am I burning ketones for fuel, or am I not? That's going to be a good choice. It's also a little bit cheaper Try to avoid the urine sticks. Some people like those, and maybe when you first start, they're okay, but um, they can be unreliable because after a couple weeks, you become adapted to running on ketones. 
they disappear in your urine. So you no longer see them anymore and people think, what am I doing wrong? Well, you're doing nothing wrong. You're doing exactly the right thing. That's why measuring the blood ketones is gonna be the, the best of the best if you wanna really know where you are. So do you have to test all the time? No, I did for a whole year during my experiment and I did a ketosis experiment in 2012, 2013. And so I did it morning and night, sometimes every hour on the hour, just to kind of show people what happens when you do this. Right. And so knowing where your blood sugar is, and again, trying to keep it under 100 for sure, optimally in the 80s. But as you have higher levels of ketones, your blood ketones are going to be higher. You're actually going to see your blood sugar go lower. Somebody wrote me just yesterday and they're like, I have a, a blood sugar of like 71. I can't understand. Is that unhealthy? Am I, am I okay? I said, do you feel good? Are you dizzy? You know, because there is such thing as hypoglycemia. You don't want to have low blood sugar, but you, you can have lower blood sugar with higher ketones, and that's completely normal. When I asked what the ketones were, they were 5.2. So pretty high ketones. And so it made sense that the blood sugar would be lower within that context. I asked the person, did they just start? Sometimes when you first start, you'll see these real high readings of like four or five, not anywhere near the dangerous ketone levels. That's 20. Five is not high within that context. So it'll go high temporarily at first, but then over time, I've done this a little while now, if you fall between one to two millimolar on the blood ketone meter, that's pretty rock and roll. And again, you don't have to measure every day. I think measure maybe every day for a month just to see where you stand and know that the morning reading is going to tend to be the lowest blood ketone of the of the day and the night reading is going to tend to be the highest. Now, when you test at night, be sure it's at least four hours after your last meal. And that precision extra, by the way, you can't find it in pharmacies. I have begged, begged, begged the company to make it easier to access and the strips are really ungodly expensive. Have you gotten the strips? No, because um, I've... They're I'm, ungodly expensive? <laughs> no, no, no. Just because I'm just now deciding to actually cut carbs out for a week uh -huh. and see what happens. So okay. at the end of this week, I'll, I'll get the strips and see how that goes. Nice. And, and the ketonics would be a really good kind of addition. Just, just so you can see a yes, no of what's happening with your ketones. Now, the blood sugar is kind of a good proxy because some people say, well, I'll just measure my blood sugar and I'll know if I'm in ketosis if it's under 100. Not necessarily. So... That's why I think testing both for a little while, then you can see numbers, you can feel how you are, definitely keep a journal of all those things. And then after a while, you'll kind of know, like right now, I can taste I have ketones. Uh, it's kind of this taste in my mouth. I can really kind of feel it that I'm in ketosis. So would that be acetone that you're tasting in your mouth? That is correct. So that's what this uh, ketonics is measuring is the acetone in the breath. And uh, yeah, and some people say, well, it makes your breath stink. Okay, no actually does not make your breath stink. It's, it's uh, sweet breath is what Dr. Atkins called it in his, in his books. <laughs> That's much more pleasant. Um, so we're starting to run low on time. So I want to just, as far as like actionable advice for folks out there, say you're eating, you know, the, the standard American diet or whatever the, the acronym SAD standard, what is that standard American diet? Yeah, SAD. Yep. Say you're eating the standard American diet. Um, how do we transition into testing this out? Because I know, I'm sure you get a lot of flack for this as well. So there's probably a lot of people that are like, no, like impossible. I would suggest people just try, you know, and, and see what they feel like. If it's not for you, that's, that's great. You know, but if, but it might be the big answer, you know? So, so what, what do you suggest yeah. for people just actionable today? What do we do? So, uh, how to get into ketosis and the actionable steps for doing that? Yeah. 
Okay, so I actually in uh, Keto Clarity came up with an acronym, K-E-T-O, Keto. K is keep carbs low. Now, low is going to be dependent on your particular situation. Uh, low for formerly 410-pound Jimmy Moore is 25 to 30 grams. You might be able to have a little more. You might even need a little less depending on your metabolic needs. Definitely if you have type 2 diabetes, metabolic syndrome, insulin resistance, and or obesity, that's probably a telltale sign that you need to keep them pretty low. I'd recommend maybe starting at 20, and if you find that you can tolerate a little more, you know, slowly introduce those back in, but starting at 20 tends to be the best. So that's K. E stands for eat more fat. We've been talking all about the healthy fats, saturated, monounsaturated, omega-3 fats. All of those are the healthy fats. You want to eat more of those and eat those to satiety. Now, don't blow past your satiety signals. Yes, you can eat too much fat, but it's very difficult if you're listening to your body. T stands for test ketones often, like we were just talking about with the blood ketones or this ketonics for the breath ketones. Try to avoid the urine because they're not reliable. And then the O is over-consuming protein is bad. And we talked about that big, long G word, gluconeogenesis. Fun to say still. And you don't want to have too much. So again, you want to find your protein threshold, which again, if you're, car if you're carbohydrate sensitive, you're also going to be very sensitive to the effects, the gluconeogenesis effects of the protein. So K-E-T-O is an easy acronym to remember all that. Awesome. Uh, final question. If you could go back to 410 pound Jimmy and give yourself some words of wisdom, what would you say other than getting to keep I would take ASAP. this fist and go, dumbass, dumbass. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, I would say love yourself. Yeah. Because I think for a lot of people, they get in that situation and they feel hopeless. They feel helpless. They're like, there's no way I could get out. And, and I think also I would say, don't worry about your weight. I mean, you're looking at me right now. I'm not a perfect weight. I don't, I don't necessarily look like Mark Sisson. I wish I did, and that would be kind of cool. But I look the best Jimmy Moore that I possibly can be. And even if that means I weigh a little more than I'd like to, as long as my health is amazing, and it is, why worry? So I would tell that man, you know what? You're going to struggle. You're still going to struggle. Even when you lose weight, you're still going to struggle for a long time, but you're going to be alive. My brother, Kevin, at the age of 41, he died of morbid obesity, heart disease, and diabetes. He had all those things, and it, he succumbed to it at the age of 41. Nobody's supposed to die that early in their life, right? and I'll be damned if I do. I love your attitude, man. It was really great getting to chat with you. How do people find you, get, get in your podcast, get on your website? Where do people find you? So I have this catch-all website, livinlavidalowcarb.com. If that's too much to remember, just type in Jimmy Moore in a Google search. I think I'm the whole first page. You can see my podcast is the Living La Vida Low Carb Show. I do that Monday through Wednesday. I also do a Friday podcast where we look at health headlines and make fun of the stupid stuff that's out there <laughs> called Low Carb Conversations with Jimmy Moore, Dietitian Cassie and Friends. And, uh, and so all that information should be on, on the site when you look it up. And then my books are Cholesterol Clarity, and I have a website, cholesterolclarity.com, and Keto Clarity, which was my 2014 best-selling book. Uh, just barely missed the New York Times bestsellers list, and it's at ketoclarity.com. Awesome. Cool. Thanks so much for your work, man. I appreciate chatting with you. Thank you. All right. I'll see you, man. 
Design Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning into the podcast. I greatly appreciate your comments and your shares in iTunes. They determine the ranking and the visibility of the show, and they make me smile. So I look forward to reading those guys. Be sure to check out the website, aligntherapy.com. That's A-L-I-G-N therapy.com. On there, you can find my blog. You can find this podcast, more information about the topics and the, and the uh, guests that we've had on the show. You can find hundreds of absolutely free instructional videos on self-care, functional movement, how to get strong, how to get fast, how to get exactly what you want out of your body. You can check out the online coaching where we work work out how to optimize your movement practice so that you can live optimally and pain-free for the rest of your life. As well, be sure to check out the self-care kit where it is as small enough to fit underneath the seat in your car. And it's like a physical therapist and a massage therapist all wrapped up into one package. I know you guys are going to love the website. I know you guys are going to get a lot of value out of it. And I look forward to hearing your comments. All right. Bye. Thank you for listening. And remember to join the movement by subscribing to the podcast. If the information has been helpful, please share and leave your comments in iTunes. Aaron personally reads each one and it makes all the work worthwhile. Together, we will make a difference and continue to bring more powerful and inspiring messages to the world. Align Podcast.